Hi there, this is James Marley. I'm the executive director and a co-founder of Livewire Markets. And this is Graham Hand from Cufflinks. Um, I'm the publisher and managing editor. So this is the first edition of a new weekly podcast. We're going to call it Inside Investing. Uh, and each week, Graham and I will discuss highlights from some of the recent editions of Livewire and from Cufflinks. And we're also going to have a bit of a chat about what we've got coming up on our websites in, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, and we're going to feature presentations or conversations we've had during the last week or so that we found particularly interesting. And from time to time, we'll invite some guests in. So, James, why don't you kick off? Who have you had a good chat with this week? Okay, great. Well, first of all, I'm going to say, Graeme, I'm delighted to be running a podcast with you. Yeah, no, it's great. I've, I've been an admirer uh, of Livewire for many years. I think it's very progressive and forward thinking of us to put our businesses <laughs> together. That's right. So who have I been speaking to the past week? Well, we've started a new CIO profile series. We've been trying them in a few different formats. And the idea is really to get interesting and prominent names from within the funds management industry to come in and, and talk to us about how they invest and what, what influences them. This week we had Charlie Aitken, who is the CIO of Aitken Investment Management. A lot of people would know him from his stockbroking days and he had a, a very colourful and vibrant morning stock note where he would uh, beat the table on a, mm. on a buyer or a sell idea and, and it used to get passed around the market. And I think a lot of people would know who Charlie is. To yeah, I've seen the video, it's really interesting. It's well worth watching. Well, we'll have that on, on the website this week. I asked Charlie you know, a bunch of questions about his background, but I asked him what his best and worst trade ideas were and, and you know, from when he was a stockbroker. And I think you know, he called out Fortescue Metals was one of the, 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 the great calls that he made. And, and I asked him, you know, why was it? And he said it wasn't because it was the investment that went up the most. It was almost um, you know, a bit nostalgic looking back an Australian company that has been a, a real success story and, and, and embraces that entrepreneurial spirit that I think a lot of people, you know, associate with Australia and, and, and what Andrew Forrest did with that note, uh, with, with that company. Yeah, I thought it was also good when he talked about the days when he was writing that newsletter and whether you would be able to do that now. And we see this with people who sometimes write articles for, for Cufflinks. They might send us their first draft and then it takes them two or three weeks to get it through their own compliance people. And it comes back quite, quite different. We call, so, it the, we call it the corporate blandifier. Okay, yeah, that's, that's a good name. Look, the, a couple of other things I picked up from, uh, from Charlie. One is it says it's interesting life as a fund manager as opposed to a broker, where now someone's keeping score, right? That was, that was clever. But the, the stock that he doesn't particularly like um, is one of my favourites, uh, Transurban, right? right? I think that is just a fantastic business. When I, when I think about, say, the Eastern Distributor, when that opened, the toll was $3.50, right? It's now $7.16. And because you have a direct debit, you know, no one really notices the cost. It's not like you hand over $7. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so you know, Charlie might be right on that one, but I'll be watching that one very closely. Well, we'll move it on. Graham, what, what caught your eye in the past week or so? Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, look, I attended a presentation by a, organised by a group called Callistone. They provide a lot of the back office software for fund managers. And they presented an, an interesting survey they'd done where the, the question to essentially a fund manager audience was, what's the most important distribution channels that you have? And the highest score were the banks, and that would be the big bank platforms mainly, and the advisors in the banks. And then IFA, so independent financial advisors, 
and then down the bottom was direct to consumer and new entrants to the market. But the really interesting thing was that the next question they asked um, was, what's the future going to be like? And the category that came first was direct to consumer. And, and second um, was the sort of fund platforms. And then thirdly, new entrants to the market. And so the, down the fourth and fifth, the banks and IFAs are the main ones at the moment. So, you know, if that was to happen, that would be a massive industry change because at the moment, a lot of fund managers like to market to the financial advisors as the way to get into the customer. But this is talking about direct to consumer. And I think this is part of the trend to licks and ETFs rather than the managed fund structure, which we've seen in the last couple of years. So I found that really um, interesting. But what a change it would be, because if you actually look at the numbers at the moment, the last numbers I've uh, seen is about 850 billion in managed funds, and there's about 60 billion in LICs and ETFs. So, you know, the, the, the consequence of that change of distribution would, would be quite a big change for the industry. It's a, definitely a trend that's very visible with the new LICs coming to market and the, and, and the ETFs as well. One of the things that I think the product issuers underestimate is how difficult it is to go the one-to-many. The size of transaction, as an example, uh, an LIC that we've worked on recently, the average size of investment during the IPO process was $14,000. Right. Now, that's a lot of investors that you need to get to get yeah. an LIC to scale. Yeah. I think it is a, th that's how people see things going. I think the actual process of, of people moving away from platforms and in terms of that being a meaningful amount of money relative to how much is going through advisors and platforms, I think it's going to be a slow process. I think it will be slow, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next uh, uh, part, which we're calling the reverse review, where we uh, each look at a couple of articles we've published recently that, that are our highlights. So, so uh, James, what have you got um, first up? Okay, so the, the first article that I've picked is it's one of the, the series that we run, we call them collections. And, and this article was titled, Avoid These 11 Habits for Better Performance. And it's really based around a lot of the common um, behavioral mistakes that investors, um, the traps that they fall into. Um, and we put a couple of questions out to a series of fund managers to sort of get their views on what they think a common trap that people fall into. And then for them to put it into context of a real life situation where they think it's providing an opportunity from an investment perspective. Now there's, in the article which we'll, we'll put a link to, you can go and read those, those individual responses in more detail. This seems like a topic that a lot of people really get into. And I know I really enjoy it myself because I read through these behavioral biases that people fall into and I can see it in my own investing. And a lot of your readers, our readers that go through this article will be familiar with a lot of these biases that exist, but you need to keep reminding yourselves of yeah. them. And you can come up day in, day out with scenarios where you can feel yourself leaning into one direction and influencing your decisions. Yeah, and look, this is a fascinating subject and people are increasingly recognising the importance of this. And as, as your article uh, says, the, the Nobel Prize for Economic Science just went to Richard Thaler. In the past, Daniel Kahneman has, has has won it. So I think any investor needs to get hold of the books by those guys and, and see what they do. The, the, my my favourite uh, of these is the anchoring one. And a little example of, of that uh, that is, is worth doing with people is 
um, get a group of people together, um, get them to uh, say take out their driver's license, write down the last couple of digits on their driver's license on a piece of paper, take out a good bottle of wine, and then say to people, how much do you think this retails for? And it's extraordinary. The higher the number from the driver's license, the more they think the wine is worth. Well, that sounds right? like a fun experiment. And it's a, great, it's a great experiment. And it just shows how people anchor to the most amazing things. And so an example in, in investing is that you often anchor to the price you paid for something. And you thought that was value when you, when you bought it. So these are important lessons to learn. Yeah. Graeme, you put a lot of work into an article titled How State Charges Can Kill Investment Returns. Um, is, that a, is it a pet topic for you? It is a pet topic, uh, James. Uh, in fact, I, I have um, a particular dislike of the way real estate agents quote property in gross yield terms. Now, all, all investments have costs involved, but people have often fall in love with a property and they have to realise that the, the costs of owning a property are enormous. And um, I don't think a lot of people put all of those costs on the table when they buy. And so this article is particularly about state taxes because that's particularly overlooked. The, the most common costs, of course, if you buy an investment uh, property, first up, you know, you've got stamp duty. Mm -hmm. So I give an example of, in this particular article of a property that's for, for sale for 1.08 uh, million. Stamp duty on that is 45,000. So the, the, your starting point is not this costs 1.08, it, it actually costs you 1.13, right? So your immediately your calculations have to be based on that. You've got a legal fees and, and then when you look at your returns, strata fees, council fees, but there's, there's sort of a couple of other state taxes which people um, often ignore. One is land tax. Land, land tax is payable at 1.6% over the threshold. Um, the threshold um, is currently in New South Wales. 549,000. But if you say you already own an investment property, um, this is your second one, and say the land value is 600,000, the land tax is $9,000 a year. So it's a big number. The other thing I talk about is uh, parking spaces. Now, it's quite a, quite a topical subject as um, a lot of people have been looking at this as an, as an alternative uh, investment that class. That was going to be my question. I was thinking about it when I was coming into work. I was like, I wonder who's out there looking at parking spaces to own as an asset class, but you obviously come across it a bit. Yeah, you, you do. I mean, there's this particular one that I quote in the article, that was um, a release in 2004 of 425 parking spaces, right? Not, not a dozen spaces in in the building where you live. I must, have, I must admit, when I, I read about that, I felt like maybe the, the, the Sydney Morning Herald was getting a cut for some of the promotional uh, editorial, shall we call it, that was being done around this. Uh, it was like the dream car park. It almost sounded like it was <laughs> going to come with, uh, you know, with, a, with a hot tub attached to it. Well, not everyone has our standards, you know. James, <laughs> so. um, but, you know, the, the parking space levy in, in Sydney City at the moment is $2,390. And there's another interesting issue here that it, it doubled in 2009 overnight. So one of the other aspects of investing is that you really have to consider what could a government do to impose a tax on what I'm doing. And almost overnight, those car spaces as investments fell in value because the, the gross rent might be only you know, $4,000 
And from that, you've, you've got strata fees, um, you've got council rates and parking space levy. You're not earning anything. And so the, the message from this article is when you buy property, which of course residential property has been generally a good investment, but go in with your eyes open. That was, that was basically the message there. No, it's a good, 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 um, a good article and uh, some sensible takeaways from it. Graeme, what else did you want to put the spotlight on from, from Cufflinks this week? Well, I thought, James, seeing as this is the first one we've done together, and um, I'm guessing you're a millennial. Um, I, think I, fought, I think I'm a fringe millennial. You're a fringe. So I think they define it as between 1980 and 2000. Yeah, I'm, I'm 80. So, okay, yeah. well, there you are. You, you squeeze in. I'm, I'm clearly a, a baby boomer, you know, yeah. so we've got a generational thing uh, going on here. So baby boomers are born between 1946 and 1964. So the interesting thing there is that, if you like, the first baby boomer of, of 1946 is now 71 years old. And it's easy for me as a baby boomer to think that we've got all of the money, right? Because, you know, we're, we're aged between 50 and 70. Um, you know, we've, we've at the, maybe some people are in the peak of their career, others are, are coming out of their career. But what this article talks about is how important millennials are for the investing uh, landscape. They are already the largest number of people. And within, um, say, 15 years, they'll actually have the most income. Now, not the most assets, but they'll be earning the most uh, income. So this has implications for products that might be in the market in that what do millennials think and what do baby boomers think and how will, the, how will that change products? And so, you know, you might think that some things are more important than I, I think they are. And this research uh, shows that uh, about 25% of all ETF trades are now done by millennials, so it's already uh, important and, and they're showing a propensity to do online because that's a world, a world that they are very familiar with. Mm. So if you just go back a few years, the number of the proportion of assets under management that were invest, invested in responsible investment strategies was only about one, one and a half percent, but it's, it's already up to about four and a half percent. So here's one change that people generally are probably driving, but the millennials are probably encouraging as well. Um, so the, the fact that there's a bit more sort of social consciousness in, in your generation than mine, uh, as a general statement, will I think, I think part of that's due to the availability of the products as well. Um, yeah. more product becoming available. I think the other um, interesting part, and it doesn't relate precisely to this article, but it's about the, the rise of uh, technology and applications that give people access to you know, investment products. And when I was growing up, the big thing was the Dolomite account, going to right. school and you'd take a little paper pouch where you might put $2 into your Dolomite account and it'd earn next to nothing. I've got a two-year-old son and I've set up uh, a micropayment investment system via an app right and it's the concept of getting him started early and compounding and each week i put him out into this app for him but it's so easy for me to do yeah um i don't have to think about it i set it up on auto payment but i know that you know if i keep doing this for the next 20 years for my son you know i'm not going to have to think about you know huge sums of money but it's this consistency of doing it and you know it's going into a, a basket of etfs that someone's selected now they may or may not be doing the absolute best job with that, and it may or may not be the cheapest opportunity, 
but it happens every week. Yeah. And I think that that's the really, one of the really important things that's available to this generation is that the core of an investment solution, for a long-term investment solution is available via your phone and can be set up really easily. And you can start doing the building blocks that might get you 80%. And then as you get more sophisticated, you might choose to tinker at the edges with lower fees or higher performance, whatever it is that you want. But you can do the basics really well from a very early age. Yeah, yeah these are important changes. And talking of changes, uh, you've, you, uh, uh, today is Melbourne Cup Day. This, this podcast will be listened to people after Melbourne Cup, but, but you, you've, uh, you've got an interesting piece on yeah. Licks. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of fun. It's been written by Daryl Wilson from Affluence Funds Management. Now, they're a, a fund of funds, and they um, have part of their fund they allocate to picking a, um, a, a bunch of LICs. Um, and we were bouncing around some fun topic ideas, and knowing Melbourne Cup was coming up, we said, well... What about if 24 licks ran the Melbourne Cup? Who would be your, your top three? Who would be your winners? Right. And so Daryl's authored this article and, and published it via Livewire. It's good fun. And he's talked about the different handicaps, obviously the, the premium or discount to NTA that the licks are trading with. And uh, I won't go through each of the licks, but he, he's done a really good job of making it quite fun. Um, he's got the, the, the jockeys and the trainers being the <laughs> portfolio managers and the, um, and the management companies. Um, and, he's, and he's given his three best tips. So um, obviously read that with a disclaimer in, in mind. All righty. Well, Graham, what have you got coming up in the week ahead of Cufflinks? You've got something that is of particular interest that you want to call out? Yeah, so Cufflinks publishes uh, six or seven original articles each, uh, each week. But this week we've got an article from uh, Gemma Dale, who um, is at NABTRADE. And she's just talking about... Uh, ETFs from a, so exchange traded funds from a different perspective than normal. Most people know uh, ETFs as index trackers, you know, a cheap way to get exposure to say the ASX 200 or the S&P 500 and you know you can get exposure to that index with with brokerage costs for only 10 or 15 basis points in some cases and so ETFs um, have grown now last Last figure I saw was 32 billion, so very dramatic um, growth in the last five years. But what Gemma points out is that there's now so so many ETFs in the market. Um, In in fact, around the world, about 7,000 of them, um, that they're not all like that. And in fact, some of them are quite complex and some of them are more expensive. And in Australia, for example, while um, a company like, say, BetaShares has the less expensive funds, she calls out, for example, the BetaShares Strong Bear Hedge Fund. This is a a fund that you can invest in um, if you're very pessimistic about the market. And in this particular case, uh, you know, for each 1% fall in the Australian market, this should rise by 2 to 2.5%. And so that's not, that's not a simple index, that's not even a cheap fund, you know, the, the fee is over 1%. So, so don't think of ETFs as just having this one characteristic. The other part I thought was interesting was that she um, calls out the transactions that their clients are doing on the NABTRADE platform um, overseas, which are asset classes not available in Australia. These would be like you know, robotics and artificial intelligence, aerospace, biotechnology, even an ETF on you know, lithium and battery technology. 
So look, these are, these are not low cost, they're not low risk. I mean, sometimes people think ETFs equals l l low risk, but the ETF market is not, is not just an, in, an index market. Yeah. You know, so I, th I thought that was quite an interesting insight that there's a lot more out there. Coming up on our side? Yeah, yeah, what's, what's coming up in Livewire? We're going to do a feature on global macro. I know you, you, like, you like forecasting, don't you, Graham? I'm not that keen, actually, James. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather set up my portfolio and for, for all weather conditions. But, but what's, what's the take? Well, the take was we have like contributors on our platform. We have a number of them that are economists and, um, and take a macro view. We've gone out to three very well-credentialed uh, economists. Tim Tui, um, who people may be aware was the economist at Goldman Sachs for a number of years. He was um, very highly rated. He's now gone to Ellison Capital and runs their global macro fund along with, or is the economist for their global macro fund. Um, Sam Ferraro and um, uh, I think writes on cufflinks from time to time as well. And so we've asked them to, to give us a bit of a view as to where, they th where we think we are in the, in the current business cycle and where they think the best place to invest is. Um, so I'm not going to give away the secrets. It's <laughs> going to be on the, on the website, but it's a three-part series really just going in to get some views. Um, it's definitely Outlook style, but these people, um, that's how they earn their crust. They have a view and they, um, they explain, they provide the rationale for, for their thinking, some interesting charts um, and some interesting top-down perspectives on, you know, where, where are we? People are sort of trying to work out if we're late cycle in the bull market. I know you had sort of a case for the bull and the bear on, mm. um, on cufflinks. Essentially, it's, the, it's that same question, but where do you think we are in the business cycle and the credit cycle and, and what are some of the, the data points out there, out there that support your views? And then the next question is, okay, based off that, where do you want to be invested? So we tend to take the top-down view and then put that into an action point. That'll be released on Livewire over the coming week in the three-part series. Okay, we'll have to go back on Melbourne Cup Day 2018 and, and see whether the, the thoughts were worthwhile. Well, that's it. It's in print, so we'll be able to go and, and, and see if it's worth a view. Look, we thought we would uh, conclude when we were talking about this with something sort of quirky that we've, we've noticed in the last uh, week or two. So what's come across your desk, James? Well, I was reading the Melbourne Cup LIC piece that, uh, that, that we mentioned earlier. And um, there's one LIC that um, was mentioned as being, you know, potentially due for the knackery. Um, <laughs> it's, called, uh, it's called Henry Morgan Limited and they're, um, they put out a, a market outlook and I went, just went to have a bit of a dig around to see what was going on and I couldn't help but um, pull out 0.5 of their October 2007 market outlook, which... Um, 2017, yeah. 2017, yeah. Um, and and I'll, I'll quote their view, which said, people will keep warning you about debt, interest rate and wars, etc. It won't matter. Equities will finish severely overvalued and we aren't even close yet. Right now, this is two people having a quiet glass of wine these markets will fi finish in a veritable orgy, and I look forward to it. Right. <laughs> so um, someone believes that there's quite a bit of uh, bit to run in this bull market, but that's probably one of the most colourful ways I've heard uh, a melt-up described in, a, in an investment outlook note. Well, my quote is uh, somewhat uh, similar, um, and it's apparently a famous quote from Martin Zwig. This was sent to me by a, a friend who's a trader. He works outside of Chicago. He used to be a, a floor trader in, on the commodities pit, but now he trades um, himself. He's, his approach to investing is completely different than mine. He, he intraday trades uh, the next two hours on the weather forecast is important to him. 
I like to think about portfolios for the next 10 years. But th this, this quote is that there is nothing more bullish than a failed bearish signal. So in other words, if something bad happens, there's a bad signal, there's an unemployment number that's high, if the market doesn't react badly to that bearish signal, that's actually the most bullish thing that can, the market can have, right? Right. And I sort of, you know, the first instinct was that that sounds really strange. But when you think about all the things that the market has shrugged off in the last year, be it Brexit, be it North Korea, be it, you know, Donald Trump, when, when the market hasn't fell on those signals, the market takes it as, wow, you know, th there's an undercurrent of, of optimism here. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's one to watch for. I like that one. Good one. Well, to um, all of our listeners out there from Cufflinks and from Livewire, I would like to say thank you very much uh, for tuning in to the first episode of Inside Investing. Links to all of the articles that we've discussed today, you'll find in, in the articles below the podcast that you're listening to. And we welcome any feedback or questions in the comments section on both the Cufflinks and Livewire um, websites. You can obviously be able to see this podcast on both of our uh, websites. Um, if you enjoyed this, then uh, please send it to a friend or share it on uh, social media. And we'll be back next week.